listening to the sermon audio from Renaissance Church. We pray this message equips you to be formed into the image of Christ as you grow in your love of God, and it fuels you to love your neighbor as yourself. We are convinced that while this sermon audio is beneficial, this should only be supplemental and not replace local church involvement, the pastor God has put over your life, or your commitment to gather in person with other believers to make more disciples for the fame of Jesus. Peace be with you. Now, when it comes to fulfilling the law and the prophets and having a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus has been guiding us on a hike from the base of the mount all the way to the heights of the mount. He's guided us on switchbacks down in the valley of what it is to have an adulterous heart and a murderous heart. He then brought us up the side of the ravine to teach us what it means to say what we mean and to mean what we say. And last week, we even learned what it means to return good to those who intend to do us wrong. And this week, this week, as we approach the summit that is the Sermon of the Mount, of the first chapter of the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus will teach us what it is to love. And he'll say to the crowds and by extension, you and me, that we are not just to love the people who love us, but we are to love even the people who are against us, who are not for us, who he would call our enemies. Do you remember? Do you remember the first couple verses of this sermon? He says, blessed Blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are you who are reviled, who are treated unfairly for my name's sake. What he's saying is you will have enemies, and what I want you to do is not just rejoice in the fact that they hate you, but to love those who hate you. So church, how how do we love people who are in opposition to Jesus and his kingdom? How do we love people who hate us because they have first hated Jesus? How are we to pray for those who are not for us, but are adamantly against us? What we'll find in this passage, if, if I can just cut right to the chase is that we are to love our enemies in the same way that Jesus has loved us. Amen? We are to love with an unconditional love. We are to love with a mercy-filled love. We are to love with a generous love. And we are to love, a love in such a way that seeks the interest of others who are different than us, who don't believe like us, and those who are opposed to us. We are to seek their interests just like we seek our own. For the Apostle Paul tells us we were once one of these people, right? For a while, we, he's talking about himself and all the believers, we were, say the word with me, enemies. We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. 
You see, the only way you are going to have the fuel to form you into the image of Jesus, to love your enemies, is to realize that you were once Jesus' enemy. And while you were his enemy, he still chose to love you. The clearest, the clearest display that you are a Christian is how you choose to display your love towards non-Christians. The clearest way that you understand God's love for you is how you display your love for others who don't love you. Jesus will guide us through these trails by taking us through his threefold patterns of fulfilling the law and the prophets. First, he will show us the distortion of the law. It's the first point. Second point, he will show us the depths of this love. And third, he will show us a divine love. Distortion of love, the depth of love, and the divine love. If you get anything out of today, I want you to get this. We are to love our enemies like God loved us while we were still his enemy. If you're with me, Look with me, first point, the distortion of love. Matthew 5, 43, he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. He's pulling on this old command from Leviticus. Now, if you remember, five of the six commands that we've looked at so far have been direct quotes from the Old Testament, not this one. This one only contains half. Look, look at the old commandment from Leviticus 19 with me. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So if it wasn't said by Moses to the crowds that we are to hate our enemies, where did the crowds hear it from? Answer, the Pharisees' blatant distortion of these commands. So what the Pharisees got from this is that a neighbor, a neighbor was only those within the tribe of Israel. A neighbor was only someone who worshipped Yahweh like you worshipped Yahweh. A neighbor was only someone within the walls of the boundary markers of Israel. Therefore, if you are a foreigner, if you do not worship Yahweh, like we worship Yahweh, if you don't dress like us, look like us, or talk like us, you therefore are an enemy and a foreigner. And because I only have to love my neighbors, the law then gives me permission to hate you. This was the Pharisees' distortion of the law. Now, not only is this faulty logic, I can get on a soapbox of false equivalencies and hasty generalizations, but we won't go there. But the Old Testament itself contradicts this Pharisee's teaching. Listen to me, the Old Testament never commands someone to hate their enemies or to hate foreigners, but on the contrary. If you just read a couple verses later in Leviticus 19, Moses says this, You shall treat the stranger who sojourners with you as the native, that is, foreigner, how are you to treat them? Just like an insider. Outsiders treated like insiders among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Or how about this command, an exodus? This is pretty practical for how to love your enemies. 
If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey or of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. How are you to treat your enemies? The same way you would treat yourself. How you treat your enemy's property? The same way you would treat your own property. And then finally, look at this passage. It's from Proverbs. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Seems pretty clear from the Old Testament that we are to love enemies. The Pharisees loved to distort this because what they found in some of the imprecatory psalms, I know it's a big word, they're just psalms against enemies. You'll find in Psalm 139, everyone loves Psalm 139, right? You knew me, you knew my inward parts while I was in my mother's womb. But they don't like it when they get to the part where the psalmist says, I hate your enemy with your hatred, O Lord. I hate those who hate you. And what commentators will say is this is a perfect hatred because they're hating the hatred of God. This is a perfect hatred. They're hating what is evil, but they're not making a personal hatred between relationships. How do we know this? Because the psalmist, at the end of the psalm, after he says, I hate your enemies with the same hatred you have for them, he says, search me, O Lord. Know my inward thoughts. See if there's any grievous way inside of me. What the Pharisees love to do is take this as a command to hate enemies of God. When Jesus says to love them, the Old Testament says to love them. Now, why is it easy to label someone an enemy? It's easy to label someone an enemy because then you don't have to deal with them thoughtfully anymore. <laughs> it's easy to label someone an enemy as anti-God because then you neutralize them. It's easy to label someone as an outsider because then you opt for an oversimplification of their personhood and humanity. You basically dehumanize them when you hate them. The Pharisees loved to do this because they wanted to ignore God's ethic of love for not just the nation of Israel, but all nations. And Jesus is saying, this type of mentality has no place in my kingdom. This type of ethnic and racial superiority has no place within my church. This type of oversimplistic thinking, this dehumanizing thinking has no place underneath my reign and rule. This type of nationalism, Pharisees, is forbidden underneath my lordship and my kingship. Why? Because it's a distortion of the way God loves. When you hate this way, you dehumanize men women and children who are created in the image of God by saying they're not worthy of my love and therefore they're not worthy of God's love. This is a distortion of love. But Jesus will show us the depth of love. Look at Matthew 5, 44 to 47. He says, but I say to you, love your enemy. 
And pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, sends his rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? See, what Jesus says to us is what the Old Testament has said all along. God wants holistic and wholehearted disciples that look just like him. Be holy as God is holy. Be love as God is love. We're not only to rejoice and be glad that we are persecuted for Jesus' namesake, but we are to love those who persecute us and pray for those who persecute us. And let me be crystal clear. I've said it in the past and I'll say it again. Not all hardships towards you. Not all words against you is persecution. But when it is persecution, when it is enmity against you because you are a follower of Jesus, it is not primarily against you. It's against Jesus. They do not hate you because of you. He says they hate you because of me. Persecution is not about us. Persecution is about Jesus. How do we know this? Look back with me in Matthew 5.11. He says, Blessed are you when others revile you, that is, your enemies revile you, and persecute you, and utter kinds, all kinds of evil against you falsely on your account. Now, what does it say? My account. Your enemies are not first your enemies. They are first enemies of God because they hate God. They don't just hate you. They hate you because they hate Jesus first. So when we interact with our enemies, Jesus says, love them. Pray for the people who insult you. Pray for the people who harm you. Pray for the people who shame you. Pray for the people who reject you. And when you do this, you are showing yourselves to be children of your Father who is in heaven. Do you see that? Do you see the so that in verse 45? So that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Now that may be in verse 45. That may be that you see there. Most theologians say that that ought to be translated show yourselves to be or prove yourselves to be. It's proof that you are a child of God in the way that you love those who aren't your friends, who love those who aren't your enemies. All right, think about it for a second. Think about to your early days as a baby. You can't, right? What made you a son or a daughter of your father, whether you knew him or not? It wasn't you. You didn't give birth to you. You didn't nurse you. Let the mama say amen. amen. You didn't raise you. You didn't grow you. But as you got older, what do your actions do? It displays whether or not you are in the family or not. Your actions do not purchase your identity as a child. They display your identity as a child. They do not purchase. You cannot earn it, but it's proof that you are a child. It's the same way with the children of God. 
You don't earn a greater standing in your family because your standing is fixed. Once you are a child, you are a child. Once you are a son of God, you are a son of God. Once you are a daughter of God, you are a daughter of God. It is fixed. It is finished. It is set in history. It is set in motion. But your actions will prove whether or not you are actually a child. It'll prove whether or not you're a child of the father that is the devil. Your father who is in heaven. You know, back in the day, it was a huge compliment to be told, you are just like your dad. But today, depending on what your father is like, it could be either the greatest compliment or the greatest condemnation. Because how you act is displaying what your father is really like. And what Jesus is about to tell us is to be like your dad. Be like your father who is in heaven. And look what he says at the last half of verse 45. So the way that you love shows that how your father loves. Jesus is saying that the way we love others must be like the way God loves both the good and the evil. The way that we love others must display the way that God loves both the just and the unjust. He shows no partiality. Your father in heaven doesn't play favorites based on someone's performance. Your father in heaven is impartial. Are your prayers impartial? Or do you play favorites with who you pray for? Those who you choose to love, are you doing it based on whether they're good to you? Or evil towards you. Jesus says, look how your father loves. He sends his reign on who? Just the good? Who else? The evil. He makes his sun rise and set on the just and the unjust. You know what folks needed back in the day to thrive and to flourish? To make a living? They needed the sun and the rain. This is what theologians call common grace. That God gives out his common grace to all people, not based on how good they are or how evil they are. This is different from salvific grace, from saving grace. Common grace says, I am going to show you good based on, not based on whether you hate me or not. I'm going to send my rain, I'm going to send my son on you. And Jesus is saying... You are to love in the same way that the Father makes his son rise. Not just on the good, but on the evil as well. Not just on the just, but the unjust. Be like your dad. Since the Father is loving to the evil and the good, love those who are evil and good. This is the standard of Christian love. Do you pray this way? Do you love this way, Renaissance? We are to love people like God. We are not to love people like people. Don't you see verse 46, Jesus says, that if you only love those who love you, 
If you only do good to those who do good to you, what reward do you have? You already have it. (laughs) It's a limiting type of love. You're just like the rest of the world. You're just like your enemies, tax collectors and Gentiles. You're loving in the same way that you are claiming your enemies are your enemies and why you have to hate them. You scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. You do good to me, I'll do good to you. You serve me, I'll serve you. See, Jesus loves the Pharisees, which are his enemies. He loves them enough to see that their self-righteousness is on par with their enemies, Jews and Gentiles. And then he gets to the crux of the matter. If you greet only our brothers, verse 47, you know better than the Gentiles. Gentiles hated the Jews. Romans only hung around with Romans. That's what brothers mean. People who are the same as you. Look like you, act like you, talk like you, think like you, live like you. Romans with Romans. Poor with poor. One ethnicity with the same ethnicity. One race with the same race. One social class with another social class. It's too difficult It's too awkward, is it not? (laughs) To try to be friends with someone who has different political convictions than you, which Rome and Jews had. It's too difficult to experience different cultures of ethnicities, which Rome and Israel had. It's too difficult to hang out with people who are richer or poorer than you, which Rome and Israel had. See what Jesus is saying? Your enemies are not people who have a different ethnicity than you. Your enemies are not people who have a different social status than you. Your enemies are not people who have a different economic status than you. They're not people who have a different societal practice than you, whether to wear a piece of cloth over their face or not. Those are not your enemies. Your enemies are not people who worship a different red, white, or blue animal, whether it's a donkey or an elephant than you. No, your enemies are those who reject the red, bloodied, stained Lamb of God who has taken away the sins of the world. Those are your enemies, and those enemies are not for your hate. They're for your love. You are to love them. But don't we love our enemies in the same way that our enemies love? Don't we just love people who are the same as us because it's just easier? Don't we love others based on what they could do for us, which is anti-grace and anti-Christ? Or do you just love others based on what you can get out of the relationship? Self-seeking, and self-interest rather than what you can give and pour out into the relationship. This is the type of love Jesus wants to see within his disciples. A love that opens themselves up. A love that pours themselves out so they can invite all 
in. This is the depth of love because this is the divine love. Third point. This divine love requires us to dig a grave, die to ourself, for this is what Christ has done for us. This is what the Father has done by sending Jesus. But Jesus ends this whole first chapter with, You therefore, verse 48, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. To say that disciples of Jesus are to be perfect, please do not think this as moralistic perfection. Right? The Pharisees have that down. They know how to be moralistic, moralistically perfect. What Jesus is talking about is this word, it's teleos. Teleos is this Greek word that means whole or wholeheartedness. And it comes from another word, telos, which is the word for vision. It's what we are aiming for. Meaning we are to have singular focus like the Father does. Singular, wholehearted intent to aim our lives one way and not be distracted in a bunch of different ways. That's how we are to be perfect. Wholeheartedly focused towards God. It's not just behavior modification. Behavior modification look like whitewashed tombs. Beautiful on the outside, dead on the inside. Not about behavior modification, but true heart transformation. And this wholehearted orientation directs the Father's love for his enemies, us, towards our enemies. But what is love? What is love? On one end of things, some people say, what is love? They don't want to be hurt. That in order to focus all of attention on what divine love is, we must rid ourselves of the counterfeits. It's amazing the different definitions of love that we get. One of my favorite definitions of love, you guys have probably have seen them. You can order them offline for $4.99. It's those black neighborhood statement of faiths. Do you see them, those black signs around your neighborhoods? It says, in this house, we believe, and then it goes statement of faith. And one of my favorite lines on there is when it says, we believe love is love. What a lazy definition of love. I mean, we learned in primary school, right, that you do not define a word with the word. Why? Because it creates confusion, not clarity. And it allows people to define what love is for themselves. We don't get to define love. But our culture loves defining what love is. And if you dig deeper into our culture's definition of love, love is what makes me happy. Love is self-focused. Love is self-protection, self-interest. It's all focused on me, myself, and I. Self-care. This quote has been making the rounds on your Instagram feed, TikTok feeds, whatever feed that you have in social media, MySpace, y'all still into that maybe. This quote has been making its rounds. It's from a guy named Roy T. Bennett in his book, The Light in the Heart. It sits up modern therapeutic book. He says this, 
Even if you cannot change all the people around you, you can change the people you choose to be around. Life's too short to waste your time on people who don't respect, appreciate, and value you. Spend your life with people who make you smile, laugh, and feel loved. That's our culture's definition of love, and sadly, it's seeping into the church. Seeping into the community of God. Rid yourself. Don't waste your time with people who are against you. I was talking with Friedrich, our missionary from Leipzig. He said he was reading an article um, about these therapeutic centers and counseling centers in New York City who had to change their advertising methods. They stopped advertising. We're offering ways to change you to now offering you ways to know how to deal with the people who bother you. No one is interested how to change themselves anymore. They just want to change the people around them who don't fit their bill, people who are bothered to them. Why? It's because our culture is obsessed with self-preservation. We're obsessed with self-protection. And in preserving ourselves and protecting ourselves, we're just not doing this at the expense of loving others. We're doing this at the expense of experiencing true transformative love that does not look to your interests, but the interest of others. You see, to love, there is no self-interest in love. There is only sacrifice and service and to love this way especially our enemy means that you are have to you have to take risks to love people you have to take risks that someone might reject you or that someone might accept you that someone might choose to hate you or someone might choose to love you it's making yourself vulnerable to experience true love i love the way that c.s lewis writes this he says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal, even you puppy lovers out there. Wrap it up carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up in the safest casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It'll become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternate to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations, which is another word for anxieties, of love is hell. Do you see what he's saying? If you want to protect yourself, you have two options. Choose not to love and end up in hell. Will you be free from the anxiety of being hurt by others because there is no love in hell? Or risk it all now so that your joy in heaven will be free from all anxieties and all hurt and all pain in the future. Love your enemies today to protect yourself from becoming an enemy of God in hell so you can experience true love 
now and in its fullness in the future, in the kingdom of heaven. See, for Lewis and for the Bible, for all that matter, love is not a feeling. Love is not merely an emotion. Love is an action. Love is first defined by what you do towards others. Love, as a modern poet and songwriter says, love is a verb. And Jesus wants you to know. He wants to ask you. He wants to know. Are you willing to risk it all for the sake of loving your enemies so that they could know that you were once loved while you were still God's enemy? Because true love is poured out. True love opens ourselves up, vulnerable to attacks. And true love offers an invitation for others, even those who might hurt us, to come on in, even though our hearts and our lives might be broken. This is love. This is divine love. It's liberating love. Do you all want to know why it's liberating love? It's liberating love because it frees you from requiring others to love you first in order to love them. It's liberating love because it frees the objects of your love from having to perform in order for you to love them. Because true love, Jesus knows that when you love and you, others no longer have to wait on their performance in order for you to love them, that's when true heart transformation takes place. That's when true unconditional love starts overwhelming you and overwhelming the relationship where it transforms enemies into friends, where we are even willing to love people all the way to our death for that is what Jesus has done for us he has loved his enemies all the way to his death true love is not sentiment true love is sacrifice true love is service and when enemies seek our harm we love them with good for this is how God has treated us do you remember that passage? For a while, while you were still enemies, while you still hated God, while you were running away from him, God sent Jesus to reconcile you to himself. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. He poured himself out. He opened himself up so that you can be invited in. He poured himself out by becoming a servant, by putting on human flesh, by coming in our likeness. Jesus Christ poured himself out. He served those who did not want to serve him. Jesus Christ washed the feet of his enemies. Jesus Christ poured himself out on the cross so that God's justice and God's righteousness and his punishment would not be poured out on us. Jesus himself opened himself up to harm. He opened himself up to hurt, knowing that those that he came for would not love him, but instead would hate him. And he opened himself up on that cross so he could take the punishment we deserve, death, so that he can invite you in, into life everlasting. And this type of love, this type of love wasn't towards those who did good to Jesus. 
This type of love wasn't towards those who were just like him. For who is good? Not us. Who is like Jesus? Who is holy, perfect, and singular focused? Not us. Jesus died for those who are not like him. Jesus died for those who were not good. And listen to me. He loves you not based on your performance. He loves you not based on how good you are or how well you love. If anything, our love at its best, at its best, our love is selective. At worst, it's self-oriented. But Jesus, in spite of our unloving ways, in his perfect, singular, focused, wholehearted love, like his Father in heaven, loved you, his enemy, so that you could become his friend. He calls you friend. He calls you friend. He calls you brother. He calls you sister. Jesus just didn't risk his life to save you. He willingly laid it down to make you a son, to make you a daughter of God. You did not love God first. He loved you first in Jesus. You did not come to God first. He came to you first in Jesus. Before you were like him, before you were good, he has come to you. And when you put your trust in him, do you know how the Father sees you? Perfect, whole, complete. That when you trust in Jesus, you get his identity as a child of God, while he takes the punishment of your identity, an enemy of God. Oh, what wondrous love is this. Bore the curse of all my sin, made an enemy your friend. We stand amazed. Are we amazed, church? If we are amazed by this love, let us be people, followers of Jesus, who open ourselves up even to enemies when they might hurt us. Let us be, church, let us be, Renaissance, people who pour ourselves out for others, even though they might never pour themselves out for us. And why do we do this? So we can welcome them in. Not based on what they do, but based on what Jesus has done for us. He's made enemies his friend. Let us love others like God loved us while we were still his enemies. Amen?